Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, the writer says, And every priest stands, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offense for sin. For those of you who have been following close in our study, reading the book of Hebrews, you've discovered that the writer is making the argument for the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus as Jesus has been revealed. Remember, grace and that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. And so he's asking and answering the question, why is Jesus superior? He's superior because of who he is and what he's done. Jesus is God. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus has made the full and final sacrifice for the purification of our sins. And in our study in the book of Hebrews, the author has argued the supremacy of Jesus over angels in chapter 1 and chapter 2, over Moses in chapter 3 and 4, over priests in chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary. He is the superior sacrifice. And so in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews is going to give three reasons why the sacrifice is superior to the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the peace offerings and the sin offerings and the trespass offerings that are contained in the book of Leviticus. Number one, those offerings were ineffective, he said in verses 1 through 4. Christ's are effective in verses 5 through 20. Number two, the Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated, festival after festival, day of atonement after day of atonement. Christ's offering is never repeated. It is once for all, forever. That's in verses 11 through 18. And number three, later the, the writer of Hebrews is going to argue that Christ's sacrifice does something amazing. It opens our way to God. And so the writer will give an explanation in verses 19 through 21, an invitation in verses 22 through 25, and then an exhortation in verses 26 through 36. If you don't understand the context... It will be very, very difficult to follow along. And that's why I keep repeating it. The writer offers a comparison. The blood of animals and the blood of Christ. He cites the frequency of the sacrifices in verses 1 through 3. And then again in verse 11. The failure of those sacrifices... In verse 4, and then again in verse 11. The Old Testament sacrificial system could never, could never, could never take away sin. And that's what we need the most, huh? We need our hearts cleansed. We need our sin forgiven so that we can experience a right relationship with God. 
And so the first part of the chapter, the writer states the purpose of the coming of Jesus. Jesus comes as the sacrifice in verses 5 through 10. And now he's going to draw attention to the permanence of that sacrifice in verse 14. Once for all, never repeated. He's going to talk about not only the permanence of the sacrifice, but the patience of our Savior. He waits until his enemies are humbled and is made a footstool in verses 13 and 14. And a future promise and a purification for Israel in verses 15 through 18. And one day, one day, one day, not only will God through Christ Purify everyone who loves him and trusts him. But the writer to the Hebrews holds out the promise that God has unfinished business with the Jewish people, with the Hebrew people, that he hasn't forsaken or abandoned the the Jewish people. That one day, the scales are going to be lifted. Their eyes are going to be opened. And they're going to be able to see the truth. Now, for each and every one of you who have ever had an unbelieving family member or relative or friend, and you wondered if the scales would ever be lifted, if the darkness would ever retreat, if for some reason they could just hear and understand how much God loves them and Jesus loves them. The sacrifice of Jesus, permanent, patient, personal, and purifying. It was C.T. Studd who, who said, no sacrifice can be too great to make for him who gave his life for me. C.T. Studd was a, was a British citizen who basically was born into a very wealthy family. And when he came into a right relationship with God in Christ, he decided that he was going to sell everything that he had. He read with complete confidence the story of the rich young ruler and decided to himself, you know what? Nothing, nothing, nothing else matters to me but Christ. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily. And offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Note the contrast right from the start. Every priest stands ministering daily. He's going to contrast the activities of the priests in the temple with the fact that Jesus has sat down. The high priest offered the same sacrifices in the temple year after year after year. Jesus offers himself once, forever. In the Old Testament, by the way, we read of only one priest who ever sat down. And it was a guy with a weight problem. His name was Eli. John Phillips points out that Eli, quote, his whole personal life, his parental life, his priestly life, was one long sad failure. The Old Testament priest had to stand for his symbolically was a work that could never be finished. Christ has sat down. We rest in a secured work. In the Old Testament, when you read the story of Eli, he has rebellious and disobedient children. He sits down in rebellion and disobedience as well. We rest in a secured work, in a finished work. This is the solid fact that the writer of Hebrews is placing over the dim shadows of the ages that have gone by. And so in verse 12 it says, but this man, this man Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So the writer of Hebrews is going to contrast the Old Testament covenant where the priest stands around and the New Testament covenant where Jesus sits fully, finally, completely. He is the true sacrifice. Remember, the blood of animals 
versus the blood of Christ. He's going to talk about the quality of the sacrifice. One is insufficient. The other one is sufficient. He's going to talk about the quantity of the sacrifice. Animals, many. Jesus, one. He's going to talk about the effectiveness of the sacrifice. One is a postponement, a deferment for a later day. And one is forever. He talks about that in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 and Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. And he does it again here. And you have to ask yourself and wonder, why does the writer of Hebrews keep pushing this point home? In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 and Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 and here in Hebrews chapter 10. Because he's trying to get through to the stubborn Jewish mindset. Where you've grown up in a religious tradition. And you ask the question, how could that possibly be true? How could it possibly be true? How could it possibly be true that Jesus, that Jesus, Jesus is the satisfying solution to the, prominent, to the problem of sin. The permanent solution to the problem of sin. The writer wants the reader to know. One sacrifice, temporary. One sacrifice, permanent. And so the writer of Hebrews knows that this statement is pregnant with meaning. But this man, this man, Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, 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 sat down at the right hand of God. Remember, this is the statement that drew so much consternation from the religious leaders when Jesus said, one day you're going to see me seated at the right hand of the Father, which means seated in the place of eternal glory, majesty, and it about undid them. And so he talks about the patient sacrifice. Look at verses 13 and 14. Beginning in verse 13, it says, From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. From which time? He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. As he's ascending into heaven, till his servants are made his footstool. He's quoting the psalmist, 110 verse 1. And this is fulfilled when Jesus will return and all of the creation will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul anticipates this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Remember where he says, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, whether it's beings up in heaven, whether it's beings under the heavens. Everyone is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. One day Jesus will be seen in the light of God's word and in the light of God's testimony. And every single enemy who has resisted God and resisted the gospel and resisted Christ and resisted the claims of Christ, they're going to be brought to the absolute conviction that the Bible was true all along. Question. Does Jesus have enemies? Yeah, the answer is yes. Jesus does have enemies. Do we have enemies? The Bible says that we have three big enemies. The world and the flesh and the devil. And as I am often reminding you, you have three great champions. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Father has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the devil. The Holy Spirit inside of you has overcome the flesh. Just be like you have enemies, you also have friends. I read the story of a reporter who was interviewing a man who was celebrating his 100th birthday. 
When I read the story, it, it reminded me of my grandma. I've already told you guys the story of my grandma. My grandmother died when she was just shy of 102. She had turned 100 and then 101. She would have been 102 in October in the year that she died. And I remember asking her on her 100th birthday, saying, Nona, how do you live to be so old? And she goes, you got to have more birthday than anybody else. When this reporter was talking to this other centurion, this person who's turning 100, he said to him, what are you most proud of? Well, said the old man, pondering the question, I don't have an enemy in the world. That's wonderful, said the reporter. Yep, I outlived each and every one of them. The unsaved who are without God, who are without Christ, who are without light, who are without life, who are without peace, who are without hope, who are without liberty. Jesus comes. Jesus comes. Jesus lives forever and ever and the enemies and the resistors and the naysayers and the skeptics and the agnostics and the unbelievers will come and go and Jesus's light and Jesus's peace and patience and hope and liberty and Jesus outlasts his enemies and in verse 14 look what it says For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So in verse 14 the writer says, for by one offering himself he has perfected forever. What does this mean? The old sacrifices, remember what we've already learned, failed to forgive people. Failed to perfect people. And, but the sacrifice of Jesus perfects forever those who are set apart by Christ. Now here, you have to understand what the word perfected means. Here, it doesn't mean you become a perfect person. It doesn't mean that you always say the right thing and do the right thing. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that we are made right or given a right standing with God in the righteousness that's found in Christ. This becomes so important to each and every one of us because guess what? You don't have the responsibility to make yourself perfect. You can't. You won't. You'll never be acceptable apart from Christ. So here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Guess what? Jesus has done it all for you. You are made right before God. You have a right standing with God. Sanctified, in part, means set apart. Remember, set apart from sin, but then also set apart to God. You see, this is the difference for each and every Christian. A Christian isn't just simply set apart to go to heaven or even set apart to experience forgiveness and washing and cleansing. You've been set apart from sin so that you could be set apart to God. And that's part of the point. That's what it means to be a believer in Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that's what the Bible means when it says, you've been set apart from sin. This is why the New Testament devotes so much time and energy to this subject. Because so many Christians want to set themselves back in the place of sin. And Paul and the writer of Hebrews says, no, that's not why Jesus came and why Jesus died. God counts the sacrifice of his son for you to set you apart from sin and set you apart to God. God reckons or counts that person free from guilt, free from condemnation. Free from sin forever and ever. This should cause each and every one of you to think then, well then why do I still experience guilt? 
Why do I still experience condemnation of sin? Why do I feel like I'm in bondage? And why do I feel like my sin is hanging its ugly head over me every moment of every day? And I think that the reason why is because we live in a broken world and we live in a fallen world and each and every one of us have experienced the nausea that comes, the sickening wickedness that comes from living in a broken world. But also, it's because we're feeling men and women. And our feelings are our feelings. And it's very, very difficult to pretend that they're not our feelings. But the actual truth is that the Bible invites you to go beyond your feelings in faith to the fact that a real God sent Jesus to love you and die for you. And so just for a moment, perfected forever, when it says in verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever, pause for just a moment, could that by any stretch of the imagination read, for he has perfected temporarily. Are you on probation? Perfected forever can't mean temporary perfection. It can't mean probationary perfection. How do we know? Again, I invite you to look back just for a moment in verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Wait a minute. In verse 10, it says that we have been sanctified in the past through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. True or false? Still true. Remember what I repeatedly have said to you. We have been delivered from the penalty of sin in the past. We are being delivered from the power of sin in the present. And one day in the future, and for some of us, it's the not too distant future. I notice, you notice my head glowing under the lights here with this snow white. Well, at least I have a little bit of hair. Hallelujah for that. But one day, one day I'm going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. So how is all of this possible and what does it mean? It means that Jesus really did take on himself our sin. Jesus really did bear our guilt. Jesus really did experience our judgment. He is our substitute and sacrifice. He gave his life for us. The cross is our assurance of both positional and progressive sanctification. And so in verse 10, it's positional. In verse 14, it's progressive. How is this possible? Again. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Sanctification doesn't rid us of this wicked world. When we become a Christian, does wickedness and evil go away? Does it go away in the world in which we live? Does it go away in our hearts? A little bit. And then a little more. And then a little bit more. And then a little bit more. Sanctification doesn't rid us of the wicked world. And it doesn't rid us of our, of our sinful nature. Those people who boast that all sin has gone from their lives, they boast about something that James never boasted about, that Paul never boasted about, that John never boasted about. 
Paul never said, I'm a sinless person. James never said, I'm a sinless person. John never said, I'm a sinless person. Paul says the opposite in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14, where he says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press forward to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's not saying, I'm Mr. Perfect and I'm arrived. Paul is saying, I'm reaching, walking, reaching and walking in the direction of of wholeness and wellness. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, Paul writes, And walk, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet and smelling savor. In Titus 2.14 he says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. That doesn't mean weird, by the way. Peculiar doesn't mean Oh, this is my biblical uh, evidence that I can be strange. No, that's actually not the meaning of the passage. The meaning of the passage means a unique and specific group that are set aside for the, spe- for the specifics of God, zealous of good works. So sanctification doesn't mean that the sin nature is gone. And it doesn't mean that wickedness is gone from the world. Or that Christians have no moral obligation or to the commandments of God. We do not teach sinless perfection. Nor do we teach that God loves or allows sinful imperfections. And what is it that, then what is it that you do teach? That God forgives sinners... And that God changes sinners. There's an unfolding change that takes place. And you have every reason to be upset, concerned, annoyed. If you don't change. If your mind remains in the gutter. If your mouth remains in the gutter. Because your heart has remained in the gutter. Justification deals with our standing. Sanctification deals with our state. Justification is that which God does for us, while sanctification is what God does in us. Justification is an act. Sanctification is a work. Justification is a means. Sanctification is the end of the means. Justification makes us safe. Sanctification makes us sound. Justification declares us good. Sanctification makes us good. Justification removes the penalty of sin. Sanctification checks the growth and the power of sin. That's why we as Christians can say, I've been justified. And this is why we as Christians can say, I'm being sanctified. And remember what sanctified means. Remember, remember, remember. It means set apart from sin and set apart towards God. That's what it means. It can't mean, I'm better than you. That's exactly the opposite of what it means. The good Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, quote, Sanctification is that condition in which the sin principle is dealt within. He's exactly right. F.F. Bruce said, Sanctification is glory begun. Glory is sanctification completed. When are you justified? When you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. When are you sanctified? 
It begins the very day that you accept Christ and then the day after and the day after and the day after and the day after. And some of you will live a week and some of you will live a month and some of you will live a year and some will live decades and some will live scores. But barring the return of Jesus Christ in glory, each and every one of you will one day close your eyes, your lungs will stop breathing, and your heart will stop beating because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death and one of the evidences that our sin nature remains and we are retained in our sin nature is that your body will die and your body will die but your soul and your spirit will go to heaven and be with Jesus and then the Bible teaches that your body will Come back to life in a glorified body and your spirit and glorified body will be reunited together and you will be given the exact body that you're going to need for where you're going to be forever and ever. And so in verse 15, he talks about our Lord's present and future purifying sacrifice. Look at what it says in verse 15. But... The Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, and I'm going to pause there for just a moment. When he uses the adversative, but, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses. What what exactly is he saying? Jesus has witnessed. The prophets have witnessed. But he's saying something else as well. In what way does the Holy Spirit witness to us? I want you to think about this. The writer of Hebrews believes that the Holy Spirit is the author of all the Old Testament books. Did you know that? The writer of Hebrews believes that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy may have been penned by Moses, but it's penned by Moses under the authority And the empowering presence and the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. Christians believe that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Why is that important? Because I just have to ask you bluntly Is that what you believe? Is that what you believe? You see, the Bible teaches that Jesus said the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Peter said that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. John said that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. The writer of Hebrews says that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Now imagine a person in Germany says, The Holy Spirit did not write the Bible. And you go, well, okay, Jesus says he did, Peter says he did, John says he did, writer of Hebrews says he did, and the German theologian says he didn't. Why are we so quick to believe the German theologian and so quick to throw Jesus, Paul, John, Peter, and the writer of Hebrews under the bus? Did the writer of Hebrews... Just make this whole thing up. The writer of Hebrews says, no, a real Jesus, according to the prophets, came, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, and rose from the dead. Did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John make it all up? No. This is part of the point that the author is making. That the Holy Spirit also testifies And gives credibility to what is being said. This is the part or the point that the author is making for the believer. For the child of God. For the follower of Jesus. Remember who his audience is primarily. Remember the title of the book? What is it? Who are the Hebrews? Jews. Jewish believers. Did the Jews believe that God gave them a book? 
Did Jews believe that God was the author of that book? And so now the writer of Hebrews is saying, you can trust the testimony that God has given concerning the truth about Jesus. And so how does the Holy Spirit do this? How does the Holy Spirit witness to us? He does it in at least four different ways. And I I don't have time, but I want to just go through it very, very quickly. Number one, we are given power by the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds. The reoccurring theme of the New Testament that is given, Jesus himself says, Look, I'm going to go, but if I go, I'm going to send another witness. I'm going to send another person who's going to testify to these things. The Holy Spirit who will be with you and who will be in you. So he says, we're given the power by the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds. Number two, the Holy Spirit imparts the knowledge of God and the will of God. The Holy Spirit draws us to God so that we can come into the presence of God. And it stirs the believer to approach God through Christ. And so that boldness that he's going to talk about in the next few chapters, he's going to say, it is the Holy Spirit inside of you that's given you a kind of boldness that says, God, Guess what? I have unfettered access to God. I can go to God on the basis of Jesus and say to him, Father, Lord, I need you. And number three, the Holy Spirit bears witness that God forgives sin once and for all. This is so important. Because the, Satan doesn't bear witness. Satan will, he'll whisper in your ear and he says, God hasn't really forgiven you. And your own condemned heart will go, I still feel like a jerk. I still feel condemned. I still feel like I am in my sin. But the Holy Spirit bears witness that God forgives us. The Holy Spirit bears witness that God has accepted the believer and adopted the believer into the family of God. And so in in Ephesians, Paul writes that you're chosen and adopted and accepted. And the writer of Colossians, I think I went there last week and I'm going to just turn there again just because it's such a powerful passage In in, in, uh, Colossians chapter 1, I never get tired of reading it. It says in verse 20 of Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, And by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you, and you, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Holy, blameless, above reproach in his sight. Hey, well, the, you know, the people I grew up with kind of know that I'm a dirtbag. I, I know. Aren't you glad that they're not the people who determine whether or not you go to heaven? Well, all of the wicked and wrong things that I've ever done, they keep coming back to haunt me. But you're holy and righteous, blameless and accepted in his sight. So if the Holy Spirit bears witness that God has accepted the believer adopted the believer into the family of God. Number four, the Holy Spirit bears witness that there's no further need for sacrifice. That Jesus is eternal, sufficient sacrifice for sin. Why does the Holy Spirit bear witness to that? Because everything in the carnal, wicked, fallen, imperfect human being says, I've got to do something to contribute to my salvation. The Holy Holy Spirit says, no, you don't. Jesus is the satisfying solution to all of it. Well, I've got to do something. What is it that you think that you need to do? I've got to go to church. 
I've got to read my Bible. I've got to hang out with Christians. I've got to read Christian literature, and I've got to listen to Christian music. Blah, blah, blah. But I, I need you to think about what's being said. Christians don't do those things in order to be saved. Christians do all of those things because they are saved. You see, saved people want to think about God and Jesus and his love and his grace and his mercy and his promises on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and all week long. You see, the Holy Spirit provides a witness that Jesus is eternal, sufficient. He provides assurance for sin and security for the believer. And so we use that term, bear witness. It means to affirm testimony. Jonathan Edwards, who's rightly been called the last Puritan writer, said, quote, The Spirit of God is given to the true saints to dwell in them as his proper lasting abode and to influence their hearts as a principle of new nature or as a divine supernatural spring of life and action. The, this is hundreds of years ago. Jonathan Edwards again is writing, a real Holy Spirit comes inside of you and changes you. He lives in us. In verse 16, it says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their heart and into their mind. I will write them. And for the careful Bible student, for the person who's been following along, you remember this is the second time that the writer has quoted Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The first time he quotes it, it's back in chapter 8. In chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, he says it word for word. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. So what's the difference and why is it repeated? In the earlier citation in chapter 8, the author is pointing out, using Jeremiah chapter 31, that the Mosaic covenant has been replaced by a new covenant. The old is obsolete. Now he cites the passage again. Not to reiterate the point that the new has taken over the old, but to make a brand new point. That not only does that earlier passage make the point that the new covenant is in in fact taking over the old one. He cites the passage because he wants everyone to understand that Jesus provides a complete remission of sin. And that there is no further need for sacrifice. What else? The covenant isn't just a new covenant. What else? It's a superior covenant. In what way? It doesn't just simply change the way you act. It changes you from the inside out. It doesn't just simply show you your sin. It cleanses your sin. It doesn't simply present you with the offer of a new life. It doesn't just simply empower you for an occasional anointing of the Holy Spirit in order to to do a particular act 
In the new covenant, you get a new heart. You get a new spirit. You get a new future. It's all new. The Puritan preacher John Owen noted, quote, God works immediately by his spirit in and on the will of his saints. What does the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you also do? The presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you strengthens your will to say, you know what, I'm going to walk away from that life and I'm going to walk away from those things and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to walk towards God and I'm going to walk towards love and fellowship. Now all of a sudden we begin to understand it isn't just a theological superiority that this particular writer is making. He's reminding you, he's reminding you of what you've always known in your heart. That light is better than darkness. That love is better than fear. And that hope is better than living in the constant dread of how could I ever be acceptable before God. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, the old prophets declared it. The life of Jesus demonstrates it. The Holy Spirit bears witness to it. Now all of a sudden again we understand what it means in the Old Testament when it says let every fact be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? The Old Testament says it's okay for you to love Jesus. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? That the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus and his sacrifice and his ascension into heaven gives you the right to love Jesus. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you have the right to love Jesus. And so in verse 17, he adds their sins. You read it for yourself, their sins and their lawless deeds. Maybe you'll do what I did in my Bible. I underlined their sins and their lawless deeds. And I go, oh, this is, a, this is a passage about me. Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Jeremiah 31, 34 makes this astonishing statement of a full and final pardon Forgiveness of sin. How does the writer of Hebrews interpret the passage? He cites that it is in fact a provision for sin. How can a holy God, a righteous God, a just God remember sin no more? How can a self-existent being who knows the beginning from the end, who is incapable of being taught anything, who can make a mistake or a wrong choice, how can he simply forget that it ever happened? Because the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and because of the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus, we're the beneficiaries of its power. Our sins are fully and finally remitted. And again, it should be obvious to everyone, if our sins have been fully remitted, finally remitted, then there, it doesn't make sense at all that any kind of offering could still continue to exist. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince the Hebrew Christians not only to not return to the old covenant, not to return to the old sacrifices, but of the absolute absurdity of such a proposition. So what does this have to do with you? For any of you who have ever grown up in a religious tradition where you were tempted to return to that tradition, I want candles. I want statues. I want beads. I want rosaries. I want ritual. In Roman Catholicism, the Mass is 
based on the absurd notion that Christ's offering has to be made over and over and over and over again. And they may argue that the sacrifice is a mere symbol, but they teach in their doctrine that the elements become the real body and the real blood. Ask a Roman Catholic, so what are you telling me? Why do you call it the sacrifice of the Mass? Is Jesus dying over and over and over and over when the writer of Hebrews says he died. How many times, ladies and gentlemen? If he died once, and who did he die for? For all. You mean everyone? You mean in the past? In the present? In the future? And look what it says in verse 18. Now where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. The Old Testament sacrifices brought about a remembrance of sin. The sacrifice of Jesus brings the remission of sins. Do you understand? One brings a remembrance. Oh, I'm a sinner. One brings remission. Oh, you mean it's gone. The word remit or remission means... To send away. Do you know what's really important about that word and that definition? There's another word that means to send away. It's the word forgiveness. Wearsby writes, Our sins have been pardoned and sent away forever. Unquote. In the Old Covenant, the sacrifice was a reminder of sins. In the New Covenant, it's a remover of sins. But there's more. The promise of remission in the New Covenant means that there can no longer be an offering for sin. There can no longer be an offering for sin because the one sacrifice was made and is sufficient. Does the New Testament believer have some practical obligations? Yes! Do those practical obligations include you have to now make a sacrifice for your sin? It can't mean that at all. If Jesus is the satisfying solution to the problem of your sin, how in the world could you be the solution to the problem of your sin? In Acts 10.43, Peter's preaching to the Gentiles in the home of Cornelius, an Italian by the way, about salvation through faith. Just wanted to point out that the first Gentile believer is, well, he's an Italian guy, so just kind of cool. And Peter says, to him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin. Same word. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. Same word. Matthew, your sin is sent away. Peter, your sin is sent away. The writer of Hebrews, your sin is sent away. I want you to think about what the writer of Hebrews is doing. The writer of Hebrews is trying to convince you that Jesus separates the sin from the sinner. Do you know why this is so important? It's because of every prayer that you've ever prayed when you said, Lord, can't you just make this go away? Can't you make my sin go away? We sing the song, don't we? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now we understand Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. My sins can't go away. But because of Jesus, my sins go away. You know what's really fun about the word remission? There's lots of fun words in the New Testament. Justification. 
Justified, never sin. Sanctification. The process whereby we are becoming more and more like Jesus. But you know what's different about remission? Remission isn't an addition word. In faith, it's an addition word. Joy is an addition word. Love is an addition word. Remission is a subtraction word. In Jesus, you get more love, you get more faith, you get more power, you get more forgiveness. But with remission, you get less. Less sin. In Psalm 103, verse 12, you know what it says. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed the transgression from me. Micah seven nineteen. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sin into the depths of the sea. I know what some of you are thinking. You mean it's like the Titanic that if I go somewhere out there and if I drop a buoy or I, uh, I send a submarine, can I plumb the depths? Can I go somewhere to maybe the Mariana Trench and dig up my sins from the bottom of the ocean? It's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. The writer is using an expression to try and help you understand that whatever it is that God does with your sin, you will never find it. He's put it in a place where it can never find you and it can never hurt you and it can never condemn you. Think about it. God doesn't deny the Christian's sin. God doesn't hide the Christian's sin. God doesn't just simply lessen the Christian's sin. He takes the sin on himself, he does it lawfully, he does it lovingly, and then it disappears forever. Jesus is the good shepherd, but Jesus is also the good fisherman. He will catch you, and then he will clean you. Francis Schaeffer writes, We must remember throughout our lives that in God's sight, there are no little people and no little places. Only one thing is important, to be consecrated persons in God's place for us at each moment. Francis Schaeffer is basically saying, you've been set apart from sin. And you've been set aside to God. And you've been given a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And the wonderful opportunity is sin no longer has to be in control of your life. And it doesn't have to dictate the terms of your life. You get to be a Christian. And because of that, you get to live differently. There was an old hymn that was sung long ago. I know, as hard as it is for the gray-haired people here, this is even before your time. It says, On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers flowed incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice Kissed a guilty world in love. The cross of Jesus. And one fell swoop. It gets rid of your sin forever. And then speaks of God's love for you. Forever. I hope you're convinced by the writer of Hebrews' argument. I know I am. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, our stain is gone. Our conscience is cleansed. We are justified. We are being 
sanctified. We are in the process of purification. And one day, one day, we'll enter the portals of glorification. The penalty of sin, gone. The power of sin, broken. The presence of sin, removed, removed, removed forever. How we long for that day. Lord, we pray that we would abandon any notion to to return to a religious system that offers darkness instead of light. That offers emptiness instead of filling. That offers works instead of grace. And Lord, we entrust our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.